Good day, everybody. Welcome to the Deal Scout. Josh here, your host, having conversations about deals, deals gone wild, and all sorts of other conversations like how to structure a deal, how to make a deal happen. So if you're looking to buy a business, uh, you're looking to acquire commercial real estate or income producing properties, or even capital partners, then this is the show for you. On today's show, we're going to have a conversation with an author, a YouTube sensation, a, a guy who loves deals, especially in the small business world, ladies and gentlemen. David, David, welcome to the show. Hey, how you doing, Josh? Great to be here. Man, freaking awesome, man. So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, what are you doing right now? A little bit about who you are and what you're doing that, you know, that you're excited about. Yeah, sure. So um, I make my regular everyday living by being a coach and consultant in helping people to buy and sell businesses. And over the course of the years, I've written a bunch of different books on topics related to deal making. Got a YouTube channel with several hundred videos I've been putting out since 2014 on the topic. And um, I think today we're going to be talking about uh, local investing, aren't we? And in, in like investing in businesses without being the owner. Yeah. Yeah. So that is a great topic because um, we have a lot of local businesses that are looking for, looking for help and support. So maybe this is a good resource for them. So why don't you kick us off? Yeah, sure. So um, the very first book I wrote back in 2014 was called Invest Local. And uh, it, it looks like this. I got a copy here. But um, basically, to, to sort of give some background on how I ended up uh, writing that book, is I actually spent quite a long time looking for that book. Uh, because, uh, you know, just to give a little bit of my own background, um, one of the businesses I got into when I was younger is I got into being a, a business finance broker. So I used to help small business owners uh, get financing from banks and leasing companies and factoring facilities, which is the sale of accounts receivable. And I used to get a lot of referrals from bankers who weren't able to help their clients and, and they would send them over to me, hoping maybe that I could find someone help to get a piece of equipment, for example, through a leasing company. And so I was working on these business deals. And whenever I would go looking for information about private investing, I would find a lot of books about uh, doing like hard money lending in the real estate world. Um, but as you know, uh, Josh, if you're going to put a private mortgage on a property, you're, you're talking six figures. I mean, you have to have quite a lot of money in order to take advantage of those kinds of opportunities. And I was always wondering, you know, what about other stuff? Because clearly there's a lot of other you know, collateral in the world, like especially in the world of business where you've got machinery, equipment, vehicles, tools, that kind of thing. And I thought maybe there's a way for us to make money doing this kind of thing. And so when I was operating my finance brokerage, um, what I would often have to do is I would end up having to do or help facilitate part of the paperwork on behalf of some of these lenders for my clients. And so one day I arranged a, a vehicle lease from a very big finance company, a multi-billion dollar operation. And Joshua, they sent me a power of attorney to act on their behalf. Now, it was a very limited power of attorney. It only gave me the authority to act on their behalf down at the DMV to put the title of the vehicle into you know, the, the proper order for their, for their lien to be applied on it. But I realized you know, all of the stuff that I was looking at doing, I could learn just by looking over the paperwork of these big companies that I was helping um, you know, to do business with. And so one day I had a lady come in the office and she was running a little business, a little diner. And like a lot of little small businesses, she wasn't keeping her books very well. And the way she was managing her business meant that she didn't have tax returns that were really going to be um, conducive to getting money at the bank. And she had to do a very small deal. She wanted to upgrade some of the kitchen equipment and it was less than $2,000. And I, and I knew immediately that 
none of my finance sources were going to be interested in such a small deal. But then a little idea came up in the back of my head and I thought, maybe I should do it. And so what I did is I went and I basically plagiarized and copied a lot of the contract wording and documentation from these other lease companies that I had handled the paperwork for. And I created my own series of documents. And I just figured, you know what, if I'm going to learn how to do this and, and it goes totally bust and I lose, you know, 1800 bucks or whatever it is, um, I mean, it'll be upsetting, but it won't be that upsetting. And so, so I did the deal and I, and I had my company do the lease on this kitchen equipment. And I think she paid it out over 18 months or so. And she never missed a payment. She made every payment. And I think I charged her close to 20% interest on that deal. And this was kind of like the, the peak under the cover, so to speak, where I began to realize, hey, you know what? There is this whole world of deals that are being done. And just because they're being done by these big finance companies and leasing companies and stuff doesn't mean that they can't be done by you and I, just like those hard money lenders are making money in the real estate world. And it, it doesn't mean that these high rates of return necessarily come with a lot of risk because of course the most profitable and risk averse businesses on earth are banks and they do loans for stuff all the time, even with small business and they try not to take risk. And the way they do it is through, you know, setting up collateral and stuff like this. So they always have a plan B. So I set about figuring out how I was going to do this so that it would make sense and I'd be able to do deals and I, I would try to avoid any losses. And eventually as I developed the methodology, it led to me writing the book. And then a little while after that, putting together sort of an online step-by-step -step program about how to do these deals. Wow. All right. So what do you do in the case? So small money lending, like what kind of volume are you doing? How many deals a month are you doing or, or to what volume dollar wise, you know, are you doing on a monthly basis? Yeah. So that's a great question. So I didn't write this book for people to go and become a bank and, and I don't want to own a bank. So this is entirely what I do to take advantage of my own networks in order to create opportunities for me to have a higher rate of return. And one of the things I recommend people don't do is don't go advertising for deals. What well, the number one thing that, <clears throat> that I do is I just let people know that I do these deals. And what ends up happening is people will come to you through the grapevine. So someone will mention to their insurance broker, for example, that they're looking for money to do something in their business. And their insurance broker might be a friend of mine who will say, well, I know someone who does that kind of thing. That the social connection is one of the key factors in controlling the risk. You know, if you think about a, a small business owner, if they owe money uh, to a bunch of different places and their business is going down and they're, they're looking at maybe declaring bankruptcy or something, it's a lot easier not to pay the big bank than it is to not pay the friend of your insurance broker, right? Who was brought to you through this personal, you know, relationship network. And so one of the, one of the, you know, there's two big plat, you know, planks in this platform of, of protecting yourself. Number one is to have some kind of connection to the person you're doing business with. And number two is to only do deals where the application of your capital actually benefits the enterprise that you're, that you're lending to. And because ultimately at the end of the day, um, the only way you can really be certain that you're going to get all your money back is if that enterprise is profitable and they can afford to make the payments. So this is why, for example, I would never lend on a big screen TV or anything like that. But, you know, a classic example, I'll, I'll give you one from what a deal I did last year. 
Um, these guys were refinishing concrete floors and they were renting certain pieces of equipment from the, from the tool rental place. And, you know, they were saying like, we're spending five to $700 a month on the tool rental place. It would be great if we had this machine ourselves. So I worked out a deal with them. Their payment to me was like 300 bucks and then they owned it. You know, it was a lease, but on the, upon the last payment, they would own it. And, um, they saved money every month. And so my loan to them, even though I made a great rate of return, made them more profitable and actually put more cash in their pockets, which meant that they were better able to make payments to me, you know, given the ups and downs of business. So you, you would look at this maybe as growth capital or, or growth debt. So it has to affect the bottom line. So you're not doing, you know, big screen TVs or Mercedes Benz, those kind of deals you're just not interested in. You're, how is this, how is my money going to help you make more money? So yeah. And, my money. <laughs> and the other side of it too, is, is what is the plan B? So uh, ideally, you know, and, and when, when we're talking about doing a lease and charging someone 18% interest, what a lot of people don't really know is that in the world of small business, those kinds of interest rates are pretty normal. When you're talking to, you know, equipment dealers that are going to arrange financing for people it's often promoted on here is your payment with the details not really being explored that well. And there are all kinds of, of tricks. And I get into this in the book about how there might be a sticker price on the lease rate of 12.9%. But in order to get the 12.9%, you have to make like your first and last two payments in advance. Well, when you take the payment that you're committing to and you actually look at how much cash the leasing company advances, you realize, hey, wait, it's not 12.9%. APR, it's actually a much higher rate because they're not advancing the full purchase price because of the money I'm putting up in advance. And so all these tricks sometimes are played by these companies. And the it doesn't necessarily mean that these people are any more of a credit risk. So my ideal borrower is somebody who could go to a bank. They, they would actually be qualified at a bank, but they want to do business with me because I bring certain other advantages. So number one, you know, I don't involve the credit bureaus. So they're not going to get a hit on their credit score. They're not going to have another trade line appear. For a lot of people, those kinds of things are important. Um, number two, if you borrow money from a bank or a leasing company, sometimes you are obligated to sign a personal guarantee for any deficiency if they have to seize the collateral, for example. So if you default and they come and they take the machine from you, what's going to happen is they're going to send it to an auction house and they're going to get very little money for it. So if, if the bank loses money, they're going to come and sue you personally for that difference. I'm, I make borrowers sign a personal guarantee that's very different. So I make them guarantee personally that they're going to deliver the collateral to me if they can't make the payments so that I don't have the burden and obligation of going out and finding and repossessing that stuff. But more importantly, what I'm interested in is keeping a open communication with the people that are borrowing so that if they are in some kind of problem that I'm aware in advance. And, and this is why I tell people that they really should be trying to do deals in the domain upon which they have personal experience. Because if you are, let's say, let's say you're a welder or a machine shop owner, you know that gear, you know that equipment. If you're doing deals on that kind of equipment and then you end up with it back, chances of you being able to find a new owner for that equipment, either to sell it or to find someone else who's willing to just take up the deal. You know, sometimes a piece of equipment will come back and you can find someone who's willing to just take up those payments. And you might have a gap of a couple months, but you end up getting all your payments, just some of them come from a different person. 
So if you know the stuff, if you know the gear, the chances of pulling off that kind of, of uh, remediation of something going wrong is, is great. I can tell you, you asked me before, how many deals do I do? I, I usually have anywhere between five and seven deals going at any given time. And so this is not huge. I, I liken this to the, the high yield sliver on an overall portfolio theory kind of way of managing your money. And by having a small amount of money out there earning a high rate of return, it means that I can take less risky investments with the, with the bulk of my um, portfolio and overall still earn a good rate of return. What's interesting though, is while I wrote the book for people that wanted to go out and learn about in doing these private investments, uh, about a third of the emails I've ever gotten well, on people quote posing questions about the book actually came from small business owners who bought the book because they're trying to attract investment into their business and they wanted to figure out how they could you know put together um, an attractive pitch or something to someone that they knew who might be a possible investor. Nice. All right. So let, let's let's flip the script on this a little bit. Let's just say I'm a I'm a business and I'm looking for some money and uh, you know, I want to read your book to, to look on how do I get outside capital, whether it's, you know, debt or equity. And I don't want to do the, the, the business or, or banking approach. I'd, I'd rather do a private investor. Mm -hmm. Walk us through that from their mindset. What's a good way to get debt for your business? What should you look for? How do you structure it? How do you prepare for that? So I mentioned earlier that I, I talked about the most risk averse and profitable businesses we know of our banks. And so you know, I'm not really that interested in taking a lot of risk with my money. And so you mentioned debt versus equity financing. So I don't ever recommend, you know, people look at buying the equity of a small business because you are quite literally taking the most riskiest position. And, you know, the world of venture capitalists and angel investors and those, you know, those are really high net worth people or organizations. And they, they take a different approach. They, they have a portfolio theory of their own. They might invest in 20 different organizations knowing some of them are going under and some of them will do well and some of them might just break even, right? That's not the game that I'm in. So I am interested in hard, tangible assets so that if a small business was needing to acquire a piece of machinery or a vehicle or, or something of that nature, that's the kind of deal I want to do where there is definitely a plan B there in that if things go wrong, there is something of value that can be taken along, you know, delivered to me so that I can try to recover my investment. Mm -hmm. There's just, when, when you in, own the equity of a small business, and, and I'm sure you know, Joshua, in, in a small business, the owners do certain things to manage their tax liability. Now, a classic example I always give is, you know, it's very common for a small business owner to put their teenage children on a company cell phone plan or something. It's cheaper for them to have the business pay for the, the teenager's cell phone than it is to take money out, pay income tax on the money, then go buy you know, the cell phone plan for the child. But if you own shares in that organization, as a shareholder, your um, return on your investment comes from dividends. And dividends are like what's left after taxes and all the expenses. So if you're not in there able to have an influence on how the expenses are being you know, managed in the business, then you really have no control. And so my philosophy is let small businesses owners do what they do. I have zero concern or impact or, or knowledge about how they choose to manage the business because under the deals that I do, it's X amount per month. It's just like, a, it's a flat amount every month and how they manage things beyond that is just none of my concern. So your, 
your theory is why should I pay for your kid's cell phone? <laughs> just well, like the monthly recurring revenue, right? You know, here's, here's, the, I'll give you another example, you know, and, and, you know, while the IRS might tell you that that is an example of something that shouldn't be done, I'll give you an example of something that's totally legit. Let's say a business owner wants to go to a conference four hours away and they decide to fly business class, right? And they spend $1,000 on a plane ticket instead of $300. Well, as an investor, I could look at that and go, hey, wait a minute, you're spending money so you can live well. That $700 was part of the profit that should have been on the bottom line and I should get a piece of that. Right. And so you can see how this creates an opportunity for, you know, friction between investors and these and small business managers. And, and that's why, you know, I prefer these debt deals or lease deals where it's strictly, you know, here's what I'm doing for you. And I get this amount per month and this many months and we're done. Awesome. So on a lease deal, right. Mm -hmm. So give me an example of versus, you know, a debt deal versus a lease deal, or is there any difference in between? Yeah, well, the difference is the title. So in a lease deal, the equipment belongs to me, and they're paying X amount per month, and I'm depreciating that equipment on my own books. And then usually what happens is at the end of it, there's like a $10 payment or something, and then they get the title at that time. The advantage of a lease deal is that I own the stuff. So, you know, I, I, if they didn't pay or what have you, and I had to go repossess something, I wouldn't have to go to court and sue somebody in order to get a judgment and then put a lien on that asset and then go and repossess it. And, and now these rules are different in every jurisdiction. And that's what I get into a little bit in the online course is how you learn about it in the jurisdiction where you live. So states, Canadian provinces, et cetera, the rules are gonna be different. So um, I want to have the most expedient process that I can in order to get back something uh, that is collateral. So I'll do, I'll do both kinds of deals. Um, a lot of the times it depends on how sales tax works. So here where I live, we have a, a value added tax system. And so um, every time a car is bought or sold, the tax has to be paid. So it's easier for me to do a lease because then when I pay the tax, when I buy the vehicle, I end up claiming back that tax. And then I collect tax from the, the person who's leasing it. And I submit that to the government over the course of time. And it's just, it's easier from a cash flow point of view. In a, in a loan situation, if I were going to make a loan on a vehicle, well, then the question is, am I going to lend the amount of the tax as well? Because then the person who's borrowing would get the tax back, not me. And immediately my loan would be underwater. And so these are the sort of particular circumstances that you look at. And it's, it's based on where you are, what the rules are, and how things like sales tax work. Yeah. If someone was looking to, to create this high yield sliver in their income portfolio, uh, a good place, you know, take a look at your book. What, what's it called again? It's called Invest Local. Okay. Now, why, why, you know, that's a good place for them to get started. They could take a look at your book. You built some online courses and such. But now why? Why local? Why, why not sit, you know, like put the word out and, you know, not advertise. Okay. Why don't you advertise? And then why do you invest local rather than, Hey, I'll do something in Alaska or something in Fort Lauderdale, you know, and anywhere in between. Yeah. Because I want to be able to nurture that relationship. I want communication. And, you know, this is something I really, you know, discovered when I, I used to own apartments and I would rent them out. And I realized that if I wasn't talking to the tenants, there was a greater likelihood of somebody pulling a midnight move or, you know, somebody damaging something and not telling me and things like this. But if I 
built a relationship with them and I talked with them every once in a while, it was harder for them to be able to do that to me. And so I want to have a relationship with the people that I'm doing business with, uh, the business owners that I'm putting capital into their business. And I want to be able to do things like just drive by their business. Like if they've got a storefront or if they have a shop or what have you, uh, I want to be able to go by. And so um, uh, that's why I want it to be local. And most importantly is I want the deals to come to me from somebody that I know. Um, I actually had someone say to me that, they knew a business owner who was looking for investors for their business. And I said, well, why didn't you give them my name? And they said, well, because I don't really trust them. So, so you see what happened there is, is the yeah. person I knew filtered that bad actor out of my field of opportunity, even before I knew about it. Yeah. All right. Now, now this sounds, this sounds great. Let's talk about a deal gone wild, like a deal gone bad, like in this scenario. So how do you deal with like a default or, you know, like, like in a situation where someone stops paying or you got to go get equipment or you just made a bad deal. Give us an example, if you don't mind. Um, well, you see, it's hard to, because the deals that I've done where I followed the rules in the book, I haven't had one go bad. Um, it's only when I get a little bit um, excited and I do things that break my own rules that I ever end up in trouble. And so I have had a couple of situations where I thought things were a really good deal and I thought things were a sure thing. And I, and I strayed from the rules that I'm talking about, you know, today with you. And what ended up happening in those cases was the amounts of money weren't sufficient for me to really to invest a lot in pursuing and trying to, you know, make good on it. So I ended up just writing them off after a while. Um, and that's the other thing that I want to talk about, about the size of the deals so one of the recommendations I make is that your first few deals should be below the small claims cap in your jurisdiction. So that if something ever did go wrong and you ended up having to sue someone, you can do it for 50 bucks without engaging an attorney, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's part of the learning curve. Um, I've been to small claims court many times, you know, back from my landlord days, um, but I've only, eh, I haven't been there once actually with any of these local investing deals, but that's, what I tell people to get started with, just, you know, sort of hedge your bets and uh, keep the, the, the cap low for your first few deals, just until you feel comfortable with what you're doing. Awesome. All right. So in terms of, and do you walk people through this in terms of like, Hey, I, you know, I've got an extra, what, what, what is in your area? What's a small claims court cap? Oh, right now it's a uh, $6,500. Okay. So you're like, okay, start in the neighborhood of 65 or 60, you know, 499 and, and below, right? So it doesn't cross that threshold. And now what, how, what does the process look like? So, you know, you're not a bank or whatever, but how do you, how do you go through this process? Do you give them all the money up front? Do you go buy the equipment? Walk us through your process. Yeah, sure. So um, if it, I'll, I'll use the example of the, the floor grinding equipment. So uh, I was introduced to those guys they explained the opportunity. They said, this is what we're spending to rent this gear and, and we'll save money if we're able to uh, own it. And so I asked them just a few questions. I wanted to make sure that they had enough revenue that it was a real business. And it was basically two fellows and they were doing this work. So they showed me the bank statements where I could see the deposits from the business. And I could see that there was enough money flowing through there that these two guys could draw a salary and support themselves. So a lot of these businesses were talking about very small enterprises. Okay. And so the, they had identified what equipment they wanted to buy. They had a, uh, a quote done up 
from a dealer. And um, I ended up buying the stuff from the dealer. And so the dealer made up the bill of sale in my company's name. And then my company was the owner. And then I leased that equipment to those guys for a certain amount per month for so many months. And then when that was done, I did a bill of sale with them and I sold it to them for 10 bucks. That's cool. That's cool. And did they come back and do more business or was it a, are most of your customers kind of a one and done or multiple deals? So a lot of them keep coming back. I, I mentioned earlier that a lot of people uh, that do these deals with me, they could go to a bank, but they don't want to. And so I've got one company right now, a small manufacturer. Uh, they're on their third deal with me right now. And they just come every once in a while, they pay off a loan and they say, we want to buy these extra pieces of equipment or these new tools. And, and I'll do one of these deals with them. Do you, Now, each jurisdiction might be you know different, but typically, do you need a special licensure? Do you need special permits, a special type of company set up to, to do uh, personal you know, loans to companies? Well, you know, the fact that you're doing it to other, to, you're making a loan to businesses usually puts you outside of a lot of the rules when it comes to lending. A lot of the rules in different states and provinces have to do with individual consumers. And there are rules for things, uh, it's called usury if you charge someone too high a rate of interest. And so a lot of the usury rules or laws, when you read them, it has to do with consumers and consumer finance, because those are the people that are deemed to require the protections of law. If, and a lot of them will say right in there that people who are in business are excluded from those rules. And this is why you can end up with people like these um, merchant cash advance outfits that will uh, buy a percentage of someone's credit card uh, transactions on the terminals. When you work out the net effective rates on those, they're in the hundreds of percent and they're exploiting these loopholes in the usury laws to be able to make these kinds of deals with small business owners. And so uh, you do need to do research and check out the laws wherever you happen to be. Uh, and in some places, um, you know, if you can see that there's a law saying you're not supposed to charge more than 20% and you go down to a restaurant equipment dealer and they've got a lease financing and you do the math and you figure out that they're charging people like 30%, then there's got to be a reason why. And there's got to be some kind of loophole or something going on. And a lot of the times it will have to do between the difference between interest and fees that people are applying, um, et cetera. So. Yeah. Now you have uh, online courses. Talk to us about your online courses. So if someone's out there and they're like, I'd like to add a, you know, a 20% high yield sliver in my income portfolio, yeah. it, you know, where, what, what kind of support could they get through your online courses? Talk to us about that. Yeah, sure. So, you know, you asked about the process and I've had other people ask about that too, which is why I made the online course. And it's not expensive. It's like three or four hours and it's a couple hundred bucks. And what I do is I simply walk people through from start to finish about how I go about finding the people that want to do the deals. Um, I also talk about how I underwrite them, like what I ask for, what information I'm looking at, uh, how to make sure that I'm dealing with who I think I'm dealing with, you know, as far as identification, um, how to do up the contracts and how to do up the deals. You know, good advice is to get an attorney to do up a contract. But if you're going to be doing a deal for 2,400 bucks and charging someone 18% interest, you can probably tell that if you hire an attorney to do the contract with you, that you're not going to end up earning any money. 
because their fee obviously is going to take up everything you're going to earn on the deal. And this is why we look at the very small deals. And we work, look at very simplistic deals with very simplistic language and very easy understand uh, kind of things. And so I go through that in the course and then how we track it. So how do you keep track of the payments? How do you create that paper trail so that the borrower always knows what's going on, that their payments are being applied, how much is due, you know, how much of a balance is left for them, et cetera. And so I walk through that whole process and it's all videos and, um, and then you can go back and watch them as many times as you want. That's pretty cool. Now you, you do deals that have, you know, equipment or, you know, a, a truck or a piece of equipment. Do you ever do uh, debt on business acquisitions or any larger purchases? I never have. No. And, and here's the thing is when you buy a business, um, you're typically paying a price that's related in some way to the cash flow that that business has. But, and I know like particularly in the States, you know, the SBA loan guarantee programs will lend a percentage of that purchase price. But, you know, if it's a profitable business, it means that the purchase price is going to be greater than the value of the tangible stuff in the business. And so and from my point of view and the way that I teach people how to do these lending deals is you want to be looking at the tangibles. So um, if someone was going to buy a business and they were coming to me looking for, for a loan, I would be saying, well, what stuff is in that business? And then you need to make sure that you're going to have free and clear title to that stuff. There, you can get into complications when, um, you know, if a business, let's say a business owned something already and they came to you and they wanted to put it up as collateral. Well, did they sign a general security agreement when they got a line of credit at the bank? If they did, then the bank is going to be ahead of you in the security registry, whether that's a UCC filing or PPSA in Canada. And so, so you need to make sure that if you're going to make a loan on something that your lien is going to be ahead of any other potential lender, right? And this is why I really prefer to be involved when something is being acquired. Because if you're there at the time it's being purchased, especially if it's being purchased from a dealer, then that transaction is what gives you sort of the, the you know, clear title and you can apply your lien on top of it. Um, I have done some deals where people have bought something used and so, you know, you go through the extra steps of doing some checks and making sure that somebody else doesn't have a lien on that thing. It's easiest with stuff like vehicles because you've got VIN numbers and things like that. It can get a little murky if you're talking about something else that, uh, you know, especially if something doesn't have a serial number. In, in general, I only like to do things that have serial numbers. Okay. Yeah, because that would be difficult. You know, you're lending money on a shovel, you know, like who owns this shovel? Did the shovel get, lent, you know, borrowed money against it in the past? Yeah. So serial numbers, you can, you could check county records or, or uh, property, not property records, but you could check public records to see if something was filed against it. Right. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, there, there's a lot of detail you can get into with this stuff. And so in the case of a general security agreement, for example, every item in the business is not listed. So when you're doing searches, if someone was buying something used, um, you have to look up not only that piece of equipment and try to find it, but you have to look up the name of the company that is selling it and make sure that you know, they don't have general liens across their whole company. If they do, you might have to take the extra step of asking them to get a letter from their bank. And listen, when a company, you know, a good sized company is selling something used for a couple thousand bucks, their bank doesn't care. Like you can get a letter saying that they're releasing the lien on that item. Yeah. 
Okay. So as you're, as you're doing this, what's the next phase in, you know, or I think an interesting conversation is what does you mentioned, you know, debt is a, you know, high yield sliver in your income portfolio, just so people out there can kind of get to know you. What, what does your, how do you structure your income, you know, thesis? Like, how do you structure that? And what does that look like typically in terms of percentages or whatever you'd like to share with us? So, okay. So um, you mean, as far as my in, investment portfolio, like how I manage my wealth? Uh, yeah, so how, I, do you, how do you do that in the terms of deal flow and deal size and such? Oh, okay. So, so basically I just look at overall the, the money that I have available and I don't exceed, you know, five or 6% with these deals. Like I, I really keep it down to a small area. Um, it is high yielding. Um, I try to manage the risk as best I can. Um, but the, in keeping it local and keeping it close to me in keeping it under control, what it also does, of course, is it reduces the deal flow, right? If I were to take out an ad in the newspaper, I'd probably get hundreds of inquiries, but now I've got to build a whole process. Now I'm talking about building a bank and that's not what I've ever wanted to do. Uh, you know, when you get to that kind of scale and size, then all of a sudden people do start asking for your license. You know, do you have a banking license? Like what, what kind of outfit is this? Whereas if it's simply, yeah, you know, like I'm a, I'm a guy with money and I'm willing to do this deal. And if anyone ever scrutinized it, they would see that I don't do very many deals and you could categorize it as helping out your friends. Um, and that's what sort of keeps it manageable uh, keeps it so that I don't incur a bunch of overhead or require a bunch of resources just to manage and keep track of this stuff. Um, but here's the key thing is that privately controlled businesses are an asset class. And if you're going to own a business, it usually takes a lot of your time. These local deals, what I call them local investment deals, allow you to get access to exposure of the small business world and the rates of return you can find in that world without actually having to own the businesses. And this is why even some of the biggest banks out there will open up leasing divisions and, and you know, have products for small business because there are high rates of return that you can access in these kinds of businesses. But if you let it suck up all your time as well, then it's just not, not as attractive. Yeah. What's, what's your favorite deal you've ever worked on? So two more questions, right? So one is, what was the, what was your favorite deal that you ever worked on? It was just either cool. It was a cool piece of equipment. It made you a crap ton of money. Like what was your favorite deal you've ever done? Um, I think that the, the, the favorite deal I've ever done was for a really high end uh, label printer. And this was for a company. They were spending a ton of money with a commercial printing outfit and they were for these like um, high quality sort of reflective glossy labels for a product that they manufactured and they were paying a lot of money for them. And when they bought their own printer, they were able to reduce that expense by about 80%. And I made good money on the deal, but nowhere near as much as they made. I mean, they made a great rate of return because they cut that expense so much. And that's probably one of my favorite deals because it was just such a slam dunk it didn't really matter what interest rate I charged them. They were, they were going to get ahead. Um, and uh, what was the other question? <laughs> Your favorite deal. I forget, to be honest. <laughs> I totally I lost it, man. I, I, was, I was thinking through the numbers. I was like, wow, that, you know, that, act, you know, that makes a lot of sense, especially when it fits your deal criteria is yes. my investment, my debt should increase your bottom line, your profitability. Well, 
Let me tell you a great application story though, because I, I spoke with a gentleman who was in the pencil in Pennsylvania and he had a very successful pizzeria business, but like a lot of restaurateurs like that, um, this, the key to his success was the fact that he was on top of everything, which meant that he was there every Friday and Saturday night. And he kind of had maxed out the opportunity for revenue and profits from that one location. He was going full out all the time and everyone was telling him, you should open a second location. But of course, the problem is there's not two of him, right? And a lot of small business people run into this problem. He read the book and he realized, wait a minute, I can use all of my expertise and knowledge from the pizzeria business and I can make money beyond the four walls of my existing restaurants with my knowledge without having to open another location and take on all the risk involved in that. So what he started to do is he started to look for people that wanted to get into the pizzeria business or upgrade equipment. And he started to do these kinds of deals to finance their kitchen equipment. So because he could look at their business, he could look at the market, look at the neighborhood, look at the location and apply his own knowledge and determine whether or not he thought that they would have a good chance of success or not. And that's just, and because he's in the business and he knew a bunch of people in the business, he knew that if he ever had to go and repossess that equipment, he could probably find ways to turn it back out or at least sell it and, and reduce the risk of being stuck with that collateral. Yeah. Yeah. So two more questions. Okay. Where could people, uh, where could people connect with you, find out more about your courses, your YouTube, where could people go uh, to do all that? Yeah. So the sort of central nervous play uh, system location online for all my stuff is at davidcbarnett.com. That's my blog site. A lot of the stuff on there is about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses. That's a majority of what I talk about. And you can find information there about the different courses. Um, Joshua, I'm going to give you a special link that you can put in the show notes for people that want to find out more about the local investing course. Um, and then the book, Invest Local, is available on Amazon, paperback, Kindle, audiobook, as well as about seven other titles that I have on there. Again, all about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses. Awesome. Awesome. Last question. What should I've asked you that I just completely missed the mark? I forgot about it or I just didn't write it down in my notes. Um, I, maybe you could have asked me like, like what are some of the biggest mistakes people make um, in trying to do one of these deals? And the, the biggest thing that I've seen or heard back from, from readers of the mistakes that they've made is allowing themselves to get caught up and excited by what the business does. Um, and you see this where someone will get really excited about the food that a certain franchise makes and they'll want to become a franchisee uh, because they like the food, not because the business opportunity was a particularly good one. And so you have to kind of um, put your blinders on. And if you're going to make a deal where you're going to finance you know, a, a commercial dough kneading machine or something like this, you really just have to look at that machine and look online, see what they sell for new, see what they sell for used and figure, you know, if I, if I buy this thing and lease it to them, or if I make them a loan to buy one and I end up with it in 12 months, how much cash will I have received from them? And then what will still be owed? And will I be comfortable having this thing sitting in my garage while I put it on Craigslist and try to sell it or find someone else that wants to lease it? And, um, the people that get too caught up in things, again, I, I shared that whenever I've broken my own rules is when I've gotten burned. You know, 
I advanced money once to a business that I thought was doing really well uh, to in part pay for an advertising campaign and it didn't work. And so then they couldn't pay me back. It was only a few thousand dollars, but I ended up eating that one. And that's not what I want to see happen to other people. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you can't go uh, sell ads on Craigslist. You can't go repo the ads or, or have them deliver it. Yeah. Uh, the rule, have an asset, asset back debt, right? That's exactly it. It's just like the bankers have been around for a long time. They built these giant businesses using the same business model, which is, you know, the, but the, the, the five C's of lending. And one of them is collateral. So what are you lending against? And then you also want to know who am I doing business with? And this is why having it come through your own network is important because you want to consider who led the person to you as well. Very cool. Very cool. Well, David, man, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, listening into the Deal Scout, if you go to the show notes down below, you'll be able to, to see all his links. And apparently I'm getting a specialized link for his his course. So click on that link, take a look at uh, what's behind that. And um, if if you want some introductions, you know, just reach out to us, say, hey, I, I chatted with David, would love an introduction and we'll go from there. David, thanks for coming on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for listening in. Talk to you all on the next episode. Thanks, Joshua.